Well, one of our sons uh, has had a lifelong discomfort with heights. Uh, I don't think he has a full-blown phobia. Not, I think it's called acrophobia, fear of heights, but just never liked, you know, driving over high bridges or never went on the high dive at the pool, uh, that kind of thing. So imagine our surprise a couple of years ago when this same son told us he was going to bungee jump. And not just bungee jump, but the bungee jump over Victoria Falls. Now, I don't know if you know where Victoria Falls is. It's in southern Africa, located right between Zambia and Zimbabwe. And it's one of the world's largest waterfalls, more than twice as big as Niagara Falls, so 350 feet high. See that little bridge down at the corner there? That's this bridge, and that bridge is 420 feet over the water. And that's where the bungee jump is. Uh, They strap you in on top of that bridge, hook you up to all kinds of safety harnesses and stuff, and then they count from five down to zero and pretty much push you off the bridge. This is our son, right after they pushed him off the bridge, heading into what is a free fall of 300 feet until the bungee cord starts to catch you and slow your fall. Here he is at the end of the bungee cord. Uh So how is he able to do this thing? You could say um, courage. Uh, You could use a word that rhymes with Cupid. But probably the best word is faith. If you think about it, he had to have faith in the company that ran that jump. He had to have faith in the young Zambian guys who strapped him up to all the harnesses. He had to have faith in the testimonies of all the other insane people who did that jump before him. And most of all, he had to have faith in the strength of that bungee cord. So we're in the fourth week today of a series from Hebrews chapter 11 called simply By Faith. They remember that Hebrews was written to encourage Jewish background followers of Jesus who were under great pressure to abandon their faith in Jesus and go backwards to their former way of thinking. And the author is reminding them of who Jesus is, what he has done, and that their faith is anchored in that which is trustworthy and true. Now, chapter 11 begins with a simple definition of faith. Hebrews 11, chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let me remind you that this is not blind faith. This is not mere religious superstition. This isn't faith in spite of evidence, like some think it is. Rather, this is faith with substance, faith with a solid foundation, faith that is anchored in real history and that produces conviction and confidence. And we began a couple of weeks ago with the story of Abel, who by faith offered true worship. And then comes in Hebrews 11 this mysterious character, Enoch. We didn't cover Enoch in our sermon series, but the Bible says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Genesis tells us that Enoch walked with God and was no more because God took him. Sign me up, right? That's a great way to go. Last week we looked at Noah, a man who by faith believed and obeyed God over the long haul. 120 years it took to build the ark in obedience. Now today we look at the next example of faith from the Old Testament. It's the character Abraham. Now we actually need two weeks This week and next week to cover Abraham. Let me give you a little background. After the flood in Genesis, we see a a repopulation of the land. But sin is still a problem. And human pride leads to the Tower of Babel story. 
God then confuses the languages of people, and then he chooses a person through whom to bring salvation to the whole world. And that person is Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11, let's read verses 8 to 12. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, this is only the briefest summary of the story of Abraham. It takes a full 14 chapters in the book of Genesis to tell. Today, we're just covering part of it, and I'm going to talk about faith as a pilgrimage, uh, faith that lives by promise, and faith that is power. First, faith is a pilgrimage. I've told many stories about my parents through the years. My mom uh, was born in 1930. She grew up in a tiny coal mining town on the hills of eastern Kentucky, what we will call Appalachia today. Her family had outdoor plumbing until she was 19 years old. And that same year, when she was 19, she heard a lady missionary preacher in a tiny church near her town uh, preach the gospel, and she gave her heart to Jesus on a Sunday night. She was the first believer in her whole family tree, going back generations. And even though she was valedictorian of her local high school uh, class, only about 20 students in that small town, her parents did not think that uh, it was necessary for girls to go to college in that day. And so she went to work as a secretary, first in a five and dime store, remember those, and then later in a large tobacco company. But she longed for more. And she told the story, she said she just believed God had more for her than that. So at age 24, against the objection of her parents, uh, she packed up all that she had and with $50 headed off to the only Christian college she had ever heard of in her life, Taylor University in Indiana. And it was a school she'd never seen and a place where she'd never been. She'd never been outside the state of Kentucky before. And at age 24, she became a freshman at Taylor. Within about two months, she met my dad. They were engaged a few months after that, married the summer after her freshman year, and I was born on her first wedding anniversary. She dropped out of school, raised a family, joined my dad in a life of ministry in 13 different congregations over 65 years. She finally finished her undergrad degree when she was 50, and then her master's degree when she was 60. In some ways, her journey started, though, when she went to a place she had never been. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, if we go back to the book of Genesis, we learn that Abraham, first called Abram, we'll talk more about that name change in a minute, was born and lived the first 70 years of his life in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, which is in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. Now, you can still go there today and see ruins of the great ziggurats of Ur. All these uh, centuries later, this one alone is like some 70 yards long, 50 yards wide, and 30 yards high. There were magnificent pagan temples. You can still see remains. Now, ancient Ur was a great city, 
Some 60,000 people lived there, complete with a university and a library, but it was a pagan city. And the main deity of that city was the moon god, which ironically was named Sin, or S-I-N. We might say Sin. This is a carving of the ancient moon god of Ur of the Chaldees. And by the way, one of the definitions of pagan worship is worshiping created things rather than the creator. The famous astronomer Carl Sagan once wrote, the universe is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. And this is the essence of modern pagan worship today. But when Abraham was about 70 years old, God, Yahweh, although Abraham likely did not know his personal name at that time, chose him, uh, God chose him and called him to leave Ur and go to a place he'd never been. Now, there's some discussion about when exactly God's call to Abraham came first to him. In Acts chapter 7, interestingly, we read, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That's Ur. Before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So it seems that God's original call came to Abraham when he was living in Ur of the Chaldees. Furthermore, Joshua tells us that Abraham's own father, Terah, was a worshiper of pagan gods. Joshua 24. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. So Abraham also was a first-generation follower of Yahweh. So God's call to Abraham seems to have come in, in two parts, so to speak. First, from the pagan city of Ur to Haran, which is a place in modern-day Turkey today, or about halfway to Canaan. The family settles there for about five years, during which time Abraham's father, Terah, dies. And then when Abraham is 75 years old, God calls again for him to continue his journey all the way to the land of Canaan. Here's the story in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Now, this is known as the Abrahamic covenant, God's unconditional promise. We'll talk more about that in a minute. A couple of things I want to point out here. Take a look at this map, okay? The total distance from Ur of the Chaldees to the land of Canaan is some 1,400 miles or so. But Abraham doesn't make that trip all at once. He only goes about halfway from Ur to Haran. See, Haran at the top of that red arc there. And that's roughly 700 miles, about the distance of, from Chicago to Bismarck, North Dakota. Okay, that's still a huge undertaking for people living in the ancient world. It would have taken months to make that journey, and it would have been very expensive. So we can assume that Abraham's family had to be relatively wealthy back in Ur and probably own property there. 
But they left much of that behind, make the journey to Haran, but then they stop there. And they settle in for roughly five years or so. And then God calls Abraham again to leave Haran and continue on to the land of Canaan, another 700 miles or so, like going from Bismarck all the way to Denver, Colorado. Now, how do, should we understand this part of the story? Why does God call Abraham twice? Why does Abraham stop halfway to the land of Canaan? Here are just a few things I think we notice. God called him to leave his father's household. But it seems like he didn't do that completely because he took his father, Terah, as far as Haran. Now, that could be that because while Terah was alive uh, as the father of the, the whole clan, Abraham didn't have the right to make all the decisions for the family. That could be a reason. It also could be because uh, the stopover in Haran was due to uh, allowing Terah to die because he was a worshiper of pagan gods and wasn't invited to the land of Canaan. We don't really know. And then we see that when Abraham finally sets out for Canaan, he takes along all his possessions that he had acquired in Haran over those five years and all the people they had acquired, which would be all the servants that they needed. And to me, it's unclear whether that's what God had asked him to do or not, or was he to leave everything behind. The final thing I notice is that Abraham's journey of faith is not a straight line. It took me a while to see this, looking at this map, and it dawned on me, could have walked straight. Now, maybe it's because they had to travel by the rivers, but just literally, his journey of faith was not a straight line. I'll come back to that in just a minute. I think we learned two things about faith in this part of the story. First, faith is often messy. That's a great theological term, messy. God calls Abraham to leave everything he knows, to go to a place he does not know, and to a future he cannot see clearly. And then we see the journey is not smooth sailing. It's long and it's hard. Abraham's life got harder once God called him. That's very clear. And it doesn't follow a straight line. The pilgrimage of faith, I think we learn, is often messy. We get sidetracked. We take detours. We find ourselves uh, stalled out along the way sometimes. And if you go back and read the whole story of Abraham in Genesis, all 14 chapters of it, you see lots of detours. You see lots of messes in Abraham's life. Notice also there's a leaving behind that happens. When God calls and we follow, there are things that are left behind. When Jesus calls his first disciples in the New Testament, Matthew tells us that going on from there, he saw two older brothers, two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Faith is messy and always involves a leaving behind. Secondly, we see that God's call is both patient and insistent. Patient and insistent. If we follow the story of Abraham's life in Genesis, we see that God calls, Abraham obeys, sort of. And then things happen. Abraham gets sidetracked, takes detours, but God continues to speak. God continues to call him by name. God continues to reveal himself to Abraham. He's patient with Abraham, but he's also insistent. So I wonder, here this morning, if you can identify in some way to the story of Abraham. 
I would guess that most of you here today have already experienced the call of God on your life. That is, He has revealed Himself to you through Jesus and called you to newness of life. But I wonder if you've ever experienced sort of detours in that journey of faith. Have you sometimes struggled to keep going when you can't quite see the destination clearly that He's calling you toward? Abraham's story tells us that faith is a pilgrimage, that it's long, that it's sometimes messy, but that God is patient and insistent, and He can be trusted. That leads us to the second thing I think we see in Abraham's story, that is that faith lives by promise. Faith lives by promise. When our boys were younger, uh, very young, I developed a, kind of a little tradition with them that whenever I had to be away um, from home on a mission trip or some sort of other ministry thing more, for more than a couple of days, I would always bring back some sort of little gift for them, some sort of t-shirt or maybe a souvenir from wherever I was in the world, just something special for them. And so as I would get ready to, to leave on these trips, they would say to me, Daddy, are you going to bring us something? Are you going to bring us something? I'd say, yeah, I'm going to bring you something. And they would say, you promise? Because they knew that if they could get me to promise, they had me, right? And so I would say, yeah, I promise. Well, the time came uh, at some point. I don't remember the exact trip I was on. Maybe one of the longer trips. Uh, get back from the trip, airport, whatever, drive all the way home. It's late at night when I'm getting home. I'm just, I'm tired, jet lagged. I just want to go to bed. I drive, I'm driving into our driveway. The garage door is going up and I remember I forgot. I forgot to get anything for the voice. And I know that they know that I promised. I know that they know that I promised. And that's the first thing they're going to ask me in the morning. So I got back in my car, drove to a local 24-hour gas station handy store and bought four bags of Skittles. I did. And the next morning, they were all excited. Daddy, what did you bring us? Daddy, what did you bring us? I said, Skittles. And they weren't all that impressed. They just weren't. <laughs> Verse 9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, the word promise here is a legal term that refers to a kind of a sanctioned, officially sanctioned promise, kind of a guarantee. And when we see it in the New Testament, it's also almost always pointing us back to the promise of God in the Old Testament. So let's review God's promises back to Genesis 12. And the Lord has said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This, again, is called the Abrahamic Covenant, and God here makes at least five promises. Let me tick through them. The promise of a land. He says, go from your country to the land I will show you. Now, Abraham has not seen this land. He's never been there. He doesn't know what the land is like. All he knows is that God has promised. So he leaves everything he knows for that which he does not know because of a promise. Then God says, I will make you into a great nation. Now think about this. Abraham has left his homeland. He's left his people, his cultural identity. He has no children at the time. This promise seems very, very far off. He says, I will bless you. Put yourself in Abraham's sandals for a minute. 
while you're trudging those 700 miles to Haran, living there for five years, then 700 more miles to the land of Canaan, how blessed do you feel? I don't think he feels very blessed at all. I will make your name great. Now here we have no evidence at all at this time that anyone outside of his clan even knows his name. But God says, I will make your name great. And then the big one. I will bless those who bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now the point here is that all of these promises would have seemed impossible and even unimaginable to Abraham at the time the promises were made. And I think here we see something of the promise of the gospel. God is telling Abraham, and I think through Abraham he's telling us, I know you. And I have something in mind for you. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He says, I will do something new in you. You are not who you think you are. I will tell you who you are and what you will become. In Romans again, Paul writes, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. God is saying, you belong to me. And I have a greater destiny in mind for you than you have for yourself. Again, in Romans chapter 8, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. God is saying, I will do more through you than you can begin to imagine. Again, the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So God's promise to Abraham, some 1,500 years before or more than Christ came into this world, is actually a foretaste of the gospel. The next thing we see is that the land of promise is also a foreign land. Verse 9, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now God promises a land. And by faith Abraham goes to that land. But it's a foreign land with strange people, a strange language, strange cultures. And he lives in tents. Now, we have no evidence that Abraham ever lived in a tent before he got to the promised land. Living in tents. So even though he obeys God, goes to the promised land, the land is not his, doesn't belong to him, not right away. He doesn't own any of the land. He lives as a nomad, as a foreigner. Now, you can go back and read the story. One commentator says, says this would be like God promising you and your descendants the land of Guatemala. Go there. And you go there... And you live the rest of your life in a camper. And your children live all their lives in campers. In 1 Peter, we read, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. As followers of Jesus... We too are strangers living in a strange land. We will never, ever completely fit in with our culture. 
We aren't supposed to. We will never be totally at home here because this is not our final home. And that's because the next thing we see is the land of promise looks forward. Verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now this is fascinating to me. The writer of Hebrews knows the promise of Christ's return. He knows the whole story of Jesus. He knows the promise of Christ's return. He knows the promise of the redemption of all things, what we call the new heaven and new earth. Heaven. He knows all that. <coughs> Excuse me, but Abraham knows none of this. He doesn't have access to what the writer of Hebrews knows, what we know. But what he believed and knew was that God was calling him to a place he had never seen and that God had promised a blessing that he could not imagine. And he believed. Our faith tells us that Jesus has fulfilled all the promises of God. And we are the descendants of Abraham. The third thing we see in the story is that faith is power. Look at verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Okay, if um, you're still paying attention by this point and you know anything about the story, you might have some questions. By faith, it says, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Really? Do you remember the story? Anything about the story? I'm going to take you through some of the story now in Genesis, so bear with me. This is sort of storytelling time. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down. And God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, which means exalted father in Hebrew. Your name will be Abraham, which means father of multitudes. For I have made you a father of many nations. God also said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, which means woman of strength, roughly. Her name will be Sarah, meaning mother of nations. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Jump ahead to Genesis 18. The story continues. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. I love this part. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Now, this is one of the truly humorous moments in the Old Testament, which is actually generally a pretty serious thing. But this is funny to me. Notice that at this time, Sarah is not exactly the poster child for faith. 
right? Remember, she's the one who suggested that since she was barren, unable to have children, Abraham should have a child with her servant girl, Hagar. And Abraham agrees. Not exactly his greatest moment either, right? God makes an outrageous promise, a promise that should not be possible. Abraham is 99, roughly. Sarah is 90. And even during a time when people live longer, uh, this was simply inconceivable. I'm so proud of you. You got that. I didn't think you'd get that. So inconceivable that she laughs at the Lord God. Have you ever laughed at what God has promised? I have. Both Abraham and Sarah have struggled to trust the seemingly impossible promise of God, but God doubles down. Notice, he gives it to them twice. He doubles down on the promise to give them a biological son and even tells them to name their son Isaac, which means what in Hebrew? Laughter. Our God has a sense of humor. What do we learn from this long and messy story? Let me try to sum it all down. As God chose Abraham, he chooses you. As God called Abraham, he calls you. God promised to make Abraham a father of a great nation, that all the peoples on the earth would be blessed through him. We are the recipients of that blessing right here today, 3,500 years later. We learn that faith obeys, faith leaves, faith follows, and faith struggles. The journey of faith is messy and long and sometimes hard. The life of faith sometimes seems impossible, but nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. God brings life where there is no life. He brings hope where there is no hope. He brings blessing where there is no blessing. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, New Testament says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is the culmination of the promise that God made to this ancient man, Abraham. This is the promise that continued down through the generations from Isaac to Jacob to Moses and Joseph and King David and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. This is the promise of faith to us and to generations that follow us. Faith is a pilgrimage, a journey. Faith lives by promise and faith is often messy. But faith is power. Not faith in our own power, but faith in God's power, for nothing is too hard for the Lord. We'll continue the story of Abraham next week. Today we're going to close with the bread and cup of communion here at South Street, which is both the completion of God's covenant with Abraham, and it's the remembrance and celebration of what Jesus called the new covenant, the promise of forgiveness and new life through the Lord Jesus. Will you bow with me for prayer as we prepare for the Lord's table? Lord, I thank you today for your word. We thank you for this ancient story of faith. Thank you for reminding us that your promises can be trusted. 
Thank you for being patient with us when our faith is sometimes messy or hesitant. Remind us now through bread and cup that your covenant of forgiveness and your promise of salvation is sealed by the blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.